Would you say a prayer with me before we turn to the scripture this morning? Jesus, we once again acknowledge your presence because you've told us that whenever we're gathered together as people who trust you and believe in you, that you're with us. God, you, you promised that to us 2,000 years ago, and it's been true since then, that you've never left us, you've never forsaken us. We've been through so many different periods of time, struggles, joys, concerns. You have been there every day, every moment. You're here with us now. You will be present with us forever and ever. And so we pray this morning, God, that you would just renew our trust in you who never changes, who is eternal. God, who loves us, you love us unconditionally and you've proven that to us. You've invited us into relationship beyond what we could have ever imagined. You've told us who we are. You've given us work to do that's meaningful and purposeful. You've given us gifts to do the work that you've given us to do. You've called us to be part of this community, this church that you've so clearly placed here in Northeast Minneapolis to be part of what you're doing here in this neighborhood and also to be part of many things beyond this neighborhood. And what a privilege it is, God, that you've invited us to be part of that. We look to the scripture this morning so that you can help us to have a long view to see who you are and what you've been doing over long periods of time uh, that we might act faithfully in the moment and trust you beyond the days that we're living right now so we can be part of this amazing story that you're writing. We love you. We trust you. We're here to hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought of kind of a fun, sort of funny warm-up introduction, and then I just threw that out. So I'm just going to dive in, if that's okay with you guys. <clears throat> What's the good news going to sound like this next week? What's the good news going to be in the coming days? Everyone in the room, I, I'm almost wagering to bet almost everyone in the room is so sick of the political environment that you can't wait for this whole thing to be over. But what's the good news? What's going to be the good news this next week? Here's some, here's some samples of things that some people might think are good news in the coming days. The good news is that we elected the first woman president in history. The good news is that we elected a political outsider to shake up Washington. The good news is that the Republicans held the House. The good news is that somehow the Democrats came up with enough Senate seats to take over the Senate. Yeah? Someone's going to think these things are good news, right? The good news is that the Vikings got back on track against the Lions. Now we've hit what people actually care about. The good news is that Aaron Rodgers has found Aaron Rodgers. Where was he? He's come back. He's playing like a quarterback again. Everyone has a different version of the good news. Yes? That's nothing new. There's always been different versions of good news, depending upon who you ask. And in the time that Jesus lived, there was as much or more political banter and turmoil 
as there is now. Back then, let me paint you a little bit of a picture. Back then, there was a big divide between people who I'm going to call the pro-Israel camp. There was a big divide between them and the folks who I'm going to call the pro-Rome camp. Now, I want to describe these, and I'm going to let you decide if you see any similarities to some of the conversation that we've been having, okay? Here you go. Pro-Israel camp. Group of people who believed that Israel was intended by God to be a superpower in the world. The greatest nation in the world is the intention of God for Israel. All other nations should defer to Israel's leadership. And they remembered and pointed to these points in Israel's history when the nation had a lot of power, when other leaders would come to Israel to see the temple that Solomon built and to seek his wisdom and to say whatever Israel says, whatever the king of Israel decides, that's what the rest of us should do. They remember these days when that temple was still standing and all other people in the world deferred to Israel's leadership. They want to make Israel great again. The good news for the pro-Israel group was that they could achieve independence from Roman oppression and once again get back to their national identity and make the nation great. Sound familiar? The people in this camp were called zealots. There was even one of these persons in the discipleship group of Jesus. He was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. One of these people who said, this is what we need to do. We need to make Israel great. Again, a superpower. There were certain religious leaders who thought the purity of Israel and its otherness from the rest of the globe was the most important thing, and they also emphasized the pro-Israel camp. Let me describe the pro-Rome camp to you. Group of people who believed that Israel should partner with the current global superpower. The, the, uh, the Roman Empire, and learned to be part of this new cosmopolitan world that was coming together, multi-nations emerging as the Roman Empire brought all these people together under one flag and one leader, Caesar. They believed that the future for the people of Israel was to accept the authority of Rome and to make compromises and political arrangements so that that new global reality that Rome had created would be good for Israel. They want to move into the future. They want to be progressive. They want to see Israel's identity in the midst of a cosmopolitan world that Rome now controls. And the good news for this group is that Israel would find favor with Rome and other allies so that they could live well in a new global reality. Sound familiar? People in this camp, one of the leaders is King Herod, who's a Jewish leader. He's the king of the Jews. He's this boisterous personality who's made all sorts of political deals, including building a new temple for the Jewish people to keep them happy and make them think that he's pro-Israel, and also cutting all sorts of deals with Roman leaders to establish and, and solidify his own political power in, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem. He's accused of being a womanizer by John the Baptist. He's accused of being an adulterer by John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. 
Other people in this camp are the tax collectors who you hear a lot about in the Gospels. People who have decided, even though they're Jewish, to, dis- to collect taxes for Rome from their own people, which makes them the most hated group of people in Israel. These folks are pro-Rome. And over and over again in this discourse that Jesus is having publicly with all sorts of different people, people want to know, is Jesus pro-Israel or is he pro-Rome? Which is it? He's asked by religious leaders whether people should pay tax to Rome or not. Are you pro-Rome or not? He's asked by Pilate whether he's the king of the Jews and pro-Israel or not. He's asked by one of his own followers whether he's really the Messiah sent to save and restore Israel or not. People have these categories and they're constantly asking Jesus, tell us which category you're in. So we know. And we can box you in and appropriately criticize or lift you up as needed, right? How many emails have you sent Jesus? And to whom? But Jesus is consistently avoiding being boxed into either this pro-Israel or pro-Rome camp by sharing a different version of good news. This is one of his primary tactics for engaging back publicly. We've talked about a lot of different ways that he engages. He heals, he teaches, he tells stories. But maybe the primary way that he's engaging is by telling the kingdom version of the good news. Listen, the good news isn't just that Israel would be great again or that you'd have some amazing relationship with Rome and have a great life in this new cosmopolitan world. There's actually a different version of good news that ought to be the thing that compels you the most and shapes your identity the most. Jesus goes public by sharing the good news. And I want to look specifically at what good news Jesus shared. I don't expect you to remember this, But a year ago, we talked about some of these similar ideas in uh, a series on gospel, gospel and race, gospel and work, and a number of other things. And we talked about the difference between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus. And I want to revisit that because I think it's really important this morning as we look forward to what the good news sounds like this next week. There are lots of places in the gospels to find where Jesus is sharing good news. And the good news sounds a little bit different depending on who it is that Jesus is talking to. So I picked one this morning that is a response, Jesus' response to a question posed to him by his cousin, John the Baptist. As I said, John had confronted King Herod on moral grounds related to his relationship with his wife. And John had been arrested by Herod and he had been put in prison and threatened with execution. So because John had threatened the pro-Rome movement, and because he had accused the king of adultery, he had been put in jail and was, I think, likely expecting that he was gonna have, he was gonna be executed. So while he's in prison, Jesus' cousin John Send some people to ask Jesus. He's having a doubt-filled moment. And he says, go and ask Jesus, are you the one we're supposed to be waiting for or should we be looking for something else? Get a confirmation for me because it looks like my life is going to end here and I want to make sure I did the right thing. 
And so here's how Jesus responds in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them together, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At the very time, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is asked by his cousin, are you the one who's going to save us? Are you the real Messiah or should we wait for someone else? You can imagine the compassion that Jesus must have felt knowing that his cousin was about to die. And he could hear the doubt in John's question when the men came, right? And then he says to these two people who come to him, go back to John and tell them what you see in front of you. This is what I've, I've learned to label the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that Jesus usually says is the gospel when you ask him in the gospels. The one he talks about the most. He says, go back and tell them what you see. Here's what the gospel looks like. People who can't see are now seeing. People who couldn't walk are now walking. People who had leprosy and other untouchable diseases are now cleansed. People who are poor are hearing news that actually sounds good to them. Go back and tell John that anybody who doesn't stumble on account of me will be blessed. That he can trust the gospel as it's coming through me, as the kingdom of God is breaking into the world in a whole different way. John can trust that. In Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is announcing his ministry in his hometown, he's reading from Isaiah. And he's saying things like, the kingdom of God is coming near to you. I've come to set the captives free. I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to bring, hail, bring healing to people who are sick. And all these things are coming true right in front of you, right now, in your midst. I am here. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the story about a shepherd who's separating sheep from goats. And it's a judgment scenario. And he says to the sheep, thank you. Because whenever I was thirsty, you gave me water. Whenever I was hungry, you fed me. Whenever I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, we have no memory of doing any of those things. And he looks at him and he goes, whenever you did for the least of your brothers and sisters, it was as if you did it for me directly. 
And then he looks at the other group and he says, whenever I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. Whenever I was thirsty, you did nothing about it. When I was in prison, you never came to visit me. And they say, we never knew that any of those things were going on. We never knew that that opportunity even existed. And he said, no, no. Whatever you didn't do for the least of my brothers and my sisters, you didn't, you didn't do it for me. So here's the point. Over and over again, when Jesus is asked about the good news, he says things like, here's how the kingdom of God is near to you. It's breaking in. And when it breaks in, these are the kinds of things that happen. People who are poor are encouraged. People who are sick who are healed. People who can't see can now see. People who haven't found any community find that community. People who look for freedom find it. These are the things that happen. The gospel of Jesus is about the kingdom of God breaking in and healing people and bringing life and hope to those who need it the most. Now, there's also the gospel about Jesus. Gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, he says this in all the gospels. He's walking with his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he takes the 12 aside because they're heading to Jerusalem and he tells them what's going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to Gentiles. These Gentiles will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and three days later he will rise. Over and over again, Jesus tells them, this is what has to happen to me and they're always baffled by that. Why are they baffled by it? Well, it doesn't fit into the camps, right? It doesn't restore Israel, and it surely doesn't help them with Rome. It seems like we've made everyone mad. He keeps telling them this is the only way for the kingdom to come in the way that God intends it, for me to give up my life for the sake of the entire world, to conquer sin and conquer death and invite people to trust me personally in ways that will change their life because the sin and the, and the guilt that is affecting them and weighing them down will be taken away from them and they will be free. And all of that will be offered to them, not because they learned to follow any rules, as Leland said last weekend, but, but by simply receiving a free gift from the God of the universe. Maybe that's why they didn't understand it. It seems a little bit out there, doesn't it? And so Jesus says this over and over again. This is my calling. This is what has to happen. You may not understand it now. You'll understand it later. And we get to other books and letters later in the Bible like 1 Corinthians 15, where it states clearly, Jesus died for our sins. And anyone who seeks and trusts Jesus for their forgiveness is forgiven of those sins because Jesus has defeated death and, and invited us into eternal life. So the good news that Jesus shared is also about his death and resurrection and all that that accomplishes for anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So the good news that Jesus shared was that he's both Lord, he is the King of kings in God's kingdom, and he's also Savior, the one who gives us forgiveness and grace from God so that we don't have to be weighed down by that. The good news is that God's kingdom is near. And that's not anything like the pro-Israel or the pro-Rome camps. The good news was that Jesus is going to provide a way for anyone 
willing to be, to be forgiven for their sins and restored into right relationship with God to receive that. Now, here's the part that's really confusing to me. If we read this if we read this together, if we could sit down and read a whole bunch of these different passages and hear what Jesus says about Gospels all the way through all the stories, and if we could read some of these clear texts like Titus 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 that very clearly say what it is that Jesus accomplished on the cross, why in the world would we ever decide that you have to, ha you have to sort of be for one of them and against the other one? It's very clear to me that, that both the coming of God's kingdom and the personal need to repent from sin and receive God's forgiveness are both the gospel, right? The gospel is both public and personal. Both and and are words we need to learn, I think. But as many of you know, Christians have found ways to divide themselves up about the silliest of things, and particularly about how they understand the gospel. We're so used to dividing ourselves up on things that we've even divided ourselves up on things like opinions of which, which gospel is supposed to be emphasized. For over 100 years now, at least, I only went back about 120 years, so forgive me. For over 100 years, Christians have been arguing and separating over about whether the gospel of Jesus or the gospel about Jesus, as I'm labeling them, is more important. And they've even gone so fine as, as far as to excommunicate the people who think one or the other is important, right? Which is another thing we're good at. So if you, think, if you think the kingdom breaking in and people receiving healing and good news for the poor is the most important gospel, you might not really be a Christian. Or if all you do is focus on personal salvation and people wrestling with their own sin and the need to reconcile that with God and you don't have a social conscience, you might not be a Christian. What sort of nonsense is this, honestly? Anybody? We have these camps, the personal salvation camp I have. I think we have this on the screen for you. The group that's committed to defining the gospel as an invitation to receive forgiveness of sins through trust in Jesus. Often evangelicals and conservatives fall into this camp. Then there's the social gospel camp, the group committed to the definition of a gospel as a call to social action that focuses on helping the poor, the sick, and the oppressed. Mostly Catholics and Lutherans and Presbyterians and mainline people and Episcopalians. And we're excommunicating each other for hundreds of years, claiming no one's going to heaven, everybody's got it wrong. This divide is still echoing today. I'm in conversations with people who, who almost break out in hives when they hear the words social and gospel go together. And I also hear people who can't imagine actually sharing their own story of, of coming to become a follower of Jesus and reconciling and asking God for forgiveness and accepting Christ into their life as their leader. I would never project that onto anybody. I just want to feed them. It's all nonsense. There is absolutely no reason why we need these two camps. There is no reason why we can't understand the gospel both as God's grace and forgiveness towards us in Jesus Christ and God's justice for all people. Can anyone agree with that? Please. I'm yelling at you. I think the world desperately needs to hear this both and gospel. We have had months and months and months of the good news essentially being something bad about the other camp. 
Really, the best news is if something horrible happens to the other camp, right? The world desperately needs to hear something other than the slogans and the negativity and the tearing down of the other. The good news is that the kingdom of God is near and that Jesus has offered salvation to the world. So I want you to imagine, I'll invite the band to come back up. I want you to imagine what your life is gonna be like this week for a minute. Why don't you close your eyes because it might be traumatic. The next couple days, people are gonna be talking about voting. They're gonna be hopefully going to vote. Everyone should vote. Then people are gonna be uh, anxiously watching news broadcasts, yes? Glued to their phones. Then there's gonna be a day, probably late Tuesday night and Wednesday, where there's gonna be a lot of angry people. Lots of angry people. Maybe even to the point of people accusing the system of not working. You're gonna have conversations at work. You're gonna overhear conversations in your neighborhood. You're gonna see people who you can tell can hardly take it anymore or are so upset. People in your family. You're gonna even get to Thanksgiving, forget this next week. Thanksgiving's gonna be rough. How can each of us think about how we wanna talk about good news this week? Here's my suggestion. I'm not saying you duck what's happening or, or, you know, don't engage. Engage respectfully. Try to point people to God. Try to, try to notice your own emotions in the conversations you're in. But more importantly, what if good news could sound like two stories from you in the next week, in the next month? And those stories are, are one of each of these. One, here's some way that I see God's kingdom breaking into the world. It could be a small story, something a kid notices, some organization that you're part of, some healing that you know someone has experienced, some way that you've seen God's kingdom breaking in and making a difference in the lives of the people that you're close to. The world is different because God is active in it. What's that story for you? You need to know what that one is. And the second story is how God's grace has changed your life this last year. The vulnerability it could take to say, I know things are crazy. Do you mind if I tell you one thing that's been different because I have God in my life? Can I tell you one thing that's been different in my relationships, in my marriage, in my job because of God's grace in my life? Because of my participation in my church? Do you mind if I tell you one of those two stories? We have, got to, we have got to, with Jesus, be pointing people to alternative news, to, to the good news that avoids the camps, that focuses on God, that believes that God's kingdom is breaking in, and that is vulnerable enough to say, this is how God has changed my life personally. If we can do that, we can start to help people see why being a follower of Jesus is so different in the 21st century, because it is really different. We are not participating in the nonsense. 
We are not disregarding the importance of politics or the political process, but we have a long view. There have been camps. There will be camps. They come and they go. God is forever. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross is forever. And the way that God's kingdom is breaking in is eternal. And we need to tell those stories and we need to share that good news. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, give us courage this week because we need courage. This is not easy, what I've just articulated. We need your courage to help us to tell the good news as you've written it into our lives. So God, even as we sing, I pray that you'd bring these stories up in our lives. Just help us to remember and pay attention to the ways in which we see your kingdom breaking in. Whether it's through the work of our church, whether it's through the work of our jobs, whether it's through personal things that we've seen happen in our neighborhoods, in our lives, in our relationships, we know that your kingdom is breaking in. Give us a 30-second, one-minute-long story that we can share with other people. And God, help us to be vulnerable enough to admit this week that without you, we are so lost. You have been gracious to us beyond what we deserve. You have given us more than we could ever imagine. You have forgiven us time and time and time again. You have told us and reminded us who we are when we've forgotten. You have pursued us when we walked away. You have called us gather, together into a community of people who loves you and wants to love each other and encourage each other to the best of our ability. God, you are amazing. You have changed our lives, Jesus. Help us to find ways to change the conversation this week and talk about that. That more people might know that no matter what happens in this world, we can take heart when we trust in you because you, Jesus, have overcome the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.